Well, we're going to pray for our time together now. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to have the first half of our main Bible reading, which will be Luke chapter 16. If you'd like to follow a reading from the ESV, there are church Bibles at the back if you don't have your own. And let's read from chapter 16, verse 1. It says this. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended his dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful with what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of a law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, 
to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We're going to have the rest of our main Bible reading, which will be Luke 17, verse 1, to uh, chapter 18, verse 8. So Luke 17, beginning at verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. <coughs> Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village. He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. 
Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We'll do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. Just to say, it's quite a large bit of text, so I won't be saying something about everything, but at the end, there will be questions or comments. So by all means, you can use those that time to talk more about the things we're going to be thinking about together. But if there's things which um, haven't made any comments on and you'd like to know a bit more about, then that will be your opportunity. Uh, there's an outline in your service sheet, so do make use of that to help you follow what's going on. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign. And although that was brought into question at the fall, as people uh, doubted um, uh, who you were, um, we thank you that um, as part of the redeemed people, your word is now back in its rightful place. And pray, therefore, that we would be those who would um, uh, be a part of your vindication, that in our response to your word, by listening, trusting and obeying it, that we would demonstrate and show that you are the God who is uh, truthful, good and rightly sovereign over us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It's easy to struggle with a parable such as the one about the dishonest manager because it can appear at first sight that Jesus is commending dishonesty. Uh, the parable's there at the beginning of Luke 16 and uh, basically there's a rich man who's employed this manager to take care of his affairs. However, the manager's failed and he's about to be dismissed for his dishonesty. But before he's actually removed from um, management, he moves to cut deals with many of the master's debtors. Um, it's an attempt to curry favour with them so that they might receive him into their houses once he's been dismissed from his current master. And we're told the rich man commends the manager for this action. Verse 8. And Jesus appears to do the same 
and instructs his disciples to go and do likewise, it would seem. Why is this dishonest manager commended for his actions? I mean, is that the kind of thing that we should be doing? Is Jesus commending dishonesty? Well, the point of the parable is stated in verses 8 and 9. Let me read again. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Notice that the manager is not commended for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. Now, the idea of shrewdness is showing good judgment. And here, this manager realised that in view of his future, he's going to use what he has in the present to prepare for it. In other words, the manager isn't commended as a whole, but on the point of his shrewdness, he is. And it's here that the parallel is drawn by Jesus. That in view of the future of his disciples, they ought to be shrewd and use what they have in the present to prepare for that future. Okay, that's, that's the basic idea. But one thing that might have caught your eye is the term unrighteous wealth in verse 9. How are we to understand this. Well, the wealth here is called unrighteous wealth, most likely because the pursuit of it can make people unrighteous. It can cause them to be selfish, cause them to take advantage of others, and cause them to be unfaithful to God. And this would fit with the material that follows uh, this parable in particular the material characterising the Pharisees' attitude to wealth. Because following this parable of a dishonest manager, Jesus warns of the perils of seeking wealth. It can amount to trying to serve two masters, verse 13. And the language of loving a master, well, that recalls uh, do you remember the summary of the law that we had back in chapter 10, verse 27? And the duty to love God. Jesus has already charged the Pharisees that they have neglected the love of God. And this charge now is, becomes sharper as it's connected here with their love of money. And then, of course, the fatal nature of the ill use of wealth emerges in the parable of the rich man, and Lazarus at the end of the chapter. Rather then, th th than this love of money, to hoard it and to use it selfishly, there is instead a generous use of it. And that's the idea behind making friends in verse 9. The way to make friends for money is to be generous with it. Money doesn't last. Rather than rely on it, should be put to beneficial use. 
to use money in a way that pleases God and serves him. Now, before we leave this parable, it's interesting to note that Jesus discerns that the sons of this world are more shrewd than the sons of light. Now, we might expect Jesus to say, don't be like the sons of this world. And in many ways, he does. But on the point of their shrewdness, he says, do be like them. Jesus' remark is that those of the world give more foresight to their future they're more shrewd in dealing with people than are the sons of light. Well, at this point, let's have a look at Luke chapter 17. Um, read again verses 3 and 4. Chapter 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now this text spells out the obligation to forgive the one who is repentant. Now, at the outset, it's worth noting that this obligation is for within the body of believers. Now, these are disciples who have been addressed. And the particular sin in view seems to be between two believers rather than something broader than that. And within this setting, there's an obligation to forgive the one who repents. Now, this isn't really a surprise because it reflects what God is like and how he relates to his people. We're to forgive the repentant because God forgives the repentant. I think we can go as far as to say that God is obliged to forgive the repentant. Now, what I mean by that is that he has promised to forgive the repentant. It's a promise that's part of the gospel that his disciples will proclaim. Now, of course, God wasn't obliged to make the promise. The promise was freely given by him. But having made the promise, it binds him to forgive the repentant. And these few verses in Luke 17 are a call to imitate God. That just as he forgives the repentant, so we are obliged to forgive the repentant. From time to time, we've talked um, about how one criticism of the church at large, well, the church at large in the West, is that it is largely repentantless. The church talks a lot about grace, 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 but not a lot about repentance. And if that is what God is like, that he freely forgives without any necessity, necessity for repentance, well, then that's going to impact the way that we relate to one another. When we sin against one another, there's going to be no need for repentance. Grace covers it. Just freely forgive. You know, if repentance isn't required in our relationship with God, why would it be required in our relationships with one another? But that's not who God is. 
God calls on us to repent. It's something we've been seeing throughout the book of uh, Luke's Gospel. And if we're to repent in our relationships with God, then we are also to repent in our relationships with one another. This, of course, impacts the way we relate to one another. If we sin against one another, then we're to stop. We're to repent. We're to no longer persist in our wrongdoing. Or to put it another way, just as we're not permitted to sin against God, so we're not permitted to sin against one another. When we do, we are to repent and we are to forgive. And this contributes to a characterization of us as the people of God. On the one hand, there is this humility. We are repentant sinners. And part of our repentance is to accept God's verdict on ourselves. That we are sinners who have repented and received the forgiveness of God. But this then characterizes our relationships with one another. That there is this forgiveness of one another as God has forgiven us. Now, just before we leave this, what Jesus says in these verses can prompt people to think, can't this be abused? It's the idea that someone sins, they say they're repentant, they're forgiven, but they sin again. They say they're repentant, they're forgiven again, and so on and so on. And then you get this pattern of abusive behaviour. Well, let me make a couple of observations. As far back as Luke chapter 3, we saw how John the Baptist talked about how there is fruit in keeping with repentance. There's repentance, and then there is a a concrete, changed conduct uh, as a result, which is the fruit of repentance. Now, one of the obvious fruits is stopping doing the action of which you repent. If you sin against your brother and you repent, the most obvious fruit you can show is to stop doing what you were doing. Now, there is a distinction between repentance and the fruit of repentance. They're not exactly the same thing. But lack of fruit ought to prompt questions, quite serious questions, about what is really going on. Now, it's not uncommon for Christians to have besetting sins or ingrained sins or ongoing sins, things that we continue to struggle with with and continue to fail at. And we may well conclude that that doesn't mean that our repentance is spurious or false. But it is still a legitimate question to consider. But do you notice that the most important thing at this stage is that we've moved, we've moved from a situation where there is this abusive relationship of sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting, to one where there is a possibility that the person sinning, by virtue of their repetition, has not really repented at all.
Well, it's in the parable of the persistent widow at the start of Luke 18 that we can wonder if Jesus risks God being thought of as an unrighteous judge. I mean, the judge in the parable is a terrible judge. He neither fears God or respects man. He has no concern for justice. The only reason that he gives it in this case is because this woman keeps on at him. And in some quarters, the parable is known as the parable of the unjust judge. And as such, we might think a parallel has been drawn between the unjust judge and God. And at that point, we think, hang on a minute, are we to think God is an unjust judge? But the argument is not just as the judge, just as the unjust judge gives justice to the persistent woman, so God gives justice to the elect who cry to him day and night. The argument isn't a just as, it's a how much more. It's if the unjust judge gives justice to the persistent woman, how much more will God, who is just, give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night? In this case, there is a contrast be made between the unjust judge and God. Now, if even the unjust judge will give justice to the persistent woman, how much more will God, who is a just judge, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And this comes as an encouragement for his disciples to pray and not lose heart. Chapter 18, verse 1. But let's just pause for a moment to consider what is it that we are to ask for? And let's read again verse 18, uh, verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The prayer is for justice for his elect. Now, to pray for justice, we might think of concerns regarding aspects of injustices in our own lives. But there's an important link in the Bible between the call for justice and the judgment of God. In Revelation chapter 6, we read that the prayers for justice from the saints are part of the stimulus to the judgment of God. It's from the census of their prayers for justice that God's judgment is then cast upon the earth and the seven angels prepare to sound the seven trumpets. Whenever we call for justice... We're calling for the judgment of God. And this link matches perfectly with the language of the coming of the Son of Man in verse 8. That is to say that the call for justice is the call for judgment, is the call for the Son of Man to come. Or to put it another way, 
This prayer for justice for the elect is a prayer for the vindication of the elect. That rather than be opposed by a world that contests the rule of God and his Christ, the prayer is that such opposition will be ended, that God's enemies will be destroyed, and there will be rest. This prayer for justice is bigger than a prayer for me and my injustices, or, or, or even the end of a particular injustice in the world. Rather, it's a prayer for vindication. Vindication of the elect. Well, as we conclude, um, let's end on the challenge of chapter 18, verse 8. So 18, verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Rather than ask the question of, will God vindicate his elect? And of course he will. God will give justice to his elect. I mean, there is no question of God not vindicating his elect. The Son of Man will come and restore all things. Rather, the question is, will he find faith? Will he find his elect asking God to give justice to them? Will he find his elect crying out for this vindication. And Jesus expects the elect to be praying for the vindication of his people. And how does this challenge our prayers? Now, at the end of the day, it's not our question of will God give justice to his elect, but God's question of will he find faith on earth. Let's pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ongoing discipleship that Jesus provides um, to his disciples as he approaches uh, Jerusalem. We pray, please, that we would be quick to um, reflect on the things that he says, that we would be those who are shrewd and use what we have now to prepare for our eternal futures with you. Pray, too, that we would reflect you and that we would be quick to forgive um, the repentant and that we would be quick to repent um, of our sins against one another. And pray too that our prayers would be increasingly informed by your concerns. That as Jesus was opposed, so he prepares his disciples to be opposed in a world that contests your rule. And therefore there is this prayer that that contesting would be over. And that your people would dwell with you. That you would be their God and they would be your people. Help us, Father, to long for that day. And that we would, pray, we would pray with the saints in Revelation 6, how long, O Lord, until you come?
Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I felt like we've covered quite a lot of ground. So opportunity now to gather your thoughts. If there's any questions or comments, you are welcome to ask. Hi, Hannah. Yes, sure. <laughs> so, um, verse nine says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So, at this point, I think Jesus is unpacking what it means for his disciples to be shrewd. So, it's, the background of the idea is the, the dishonest manager has used what he had um, to prepare for the future, because there's going to be a change as he would be, um, he's been dismissed as the manager. So in that sense, this, you've got this thing of, use what you have now to prepare for the future. Now this, this obviously has a very significant impact for the disciples, um, because their future is an eternal dwelling. It's the new heaven and the new earth. So he's, he's drawing this parallel to use what you have now and in particular, you know, the thing in view is wealth, money, to invest in a life in, 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 in the priorities of, of eternity. So it's kind of on the theme of seek first the kingdom, kingdom priorities. And the contrast, of course, is the things he goes on to explore, that there's love of money, there's hoarding of money, there's a selfish use of money, there's using it now um, without any... Um, consideration for that which is to come, you know, which is obviously the rich man Lazarus. The rich man is, you know, he's he's a fool because he's he's not prepared for his eternity. So I think that's the, um, you know, that's the kind of the field of play. I think you've got a few other things going on. So the the unrighteous wealth, I mentioned, it's, it's not because wealth is bad in itself. It's just that it's um, um well, the commentator. Uh, uh, argues that it's unrighteous and that the pursuit of it is unrighteous. So there's just a warning with wealth is that it's quite seductive. It can, it can draw you away from serving God and serving yourself and the pleasures of this world rather than investing. So it's kind of putting the money in its place. You know, it doesn't last. The pursuit of it is, is folly. Therefore, use it, use it well for the kingdom. Now, the friends, 
I mean, it's interesting because the thing that lasts is our relationships. Because you can't take anything with you. You know, your house, you know, all your possessions, you don't take them. But the people and our relationships with each other, we have for eternity. Um, so I take it there is this investing in people as opposed to things because they are the, the things that we will enjoy. And I think that is part of that sort of treasure in heaven that we talked about a few weeks ago, that actually investing in our relationships now and that includes i think proclaiming the gospel and seeing people converted and and joining us that there is a joy that will um go beyond beyond this life um i mean interestingly the commentator just one final thing um the commentator, it says, when it says, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So he asked the question, who is the they? Is it the friends you've made? So, you know, when you get to heaven, you know, all your Christian friends, the church family is like, way, no, welcome, Hannah. We, no, there's that sort of thing. Or is it they as in kind of God and the heavenly host? Um, the commentator plums for God, that actually it's, it's God's welcome but at the same time, you know, I think it's still true that our relationships um, last for eternity. So it's not like when you go to, I mean, I guess we'll make lots of new friends in the new heaven, new earth, but actually we'll already have a whole bunch of ones that we've invested in here. And so to, and I think that goes back to the whole, in chapter 17, why there's these warnings of not to cause one another to sin. Because how can we do that? You know, we, we, need, we need to relate well to one another because it's, that's part of our preparation for that which is to come. Okay, cool. Yes, hi, um, Rachel. Um, to think about the beginning of chapter 17. Oh, yeah. And forgiving those who are repenting. And think about how God forgives those who are repenting. And I would just think in the same way about those who may sin against them. Yeah. So, how are we to uh, relate to people who sin against us but aren't repentant? Um, So, I guess um, first, um, just uh, thing to be thinking about is that this is um, this is from within the body of believers. So the expectation is. if we have repented in our relationship with God and been forgiven, then that then ought to manifest itself in our earthly relationships. Um, so I think if someone is like not a Christian, we're not expecting them to repent in, 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 in that sense because they're not, um, they don't know God, they're not seeking to imitate him. And I guess then, you know, there's the stuff about we're at this, between the now and not yet of the first and second coming of Jesus, we're in this period of mercy and there is a loving our enemies. There has been a, a kindness to people. Um, at least, yeah, that's, 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 part, that's part of it. Um, but if it's within believers, I mean, there is this obligation to repent. And even Jesus, is it in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, forgive 
forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The implication is that if we don't forgive those who sin against us, uh, why are you expecting God to forgive you your sins? I think it's quite serious. Um, and so I don't think it's something we should kind of give up lightly and just go, grace covers it, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I think we, um, that's something that we want. I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, if people don't repent, then that relationship is not, is not restored. Because if, if someone cont- either continues in that pattern of behavior or um, has not addressed it, that relationship is, um, uh, is, not, um, is, not, is not good. But if they don't repent, then you can't do anything about it. So I guess then it's, um, in many ways, you, you know, there is a patience and that they would, you know, through texts like this, they would come to their senses and think, actually, I need, to, I need to repent, I need to stop doing what I'm doing, I need to restore that relationship with a brother or sister whom I've, whom I've hurt. Um, I suppose the other thing to say, the big picture stuff, is that at the end of the day, we continue to trust in God and his justice, and it goes back to this cry for vindication, because ultimately when the Son of Man comes, he will wipe away every tear, everything will be restored, all our relationships will be you know, restored and made new. So I guess that kind of feeds into that, whilst there is this expectation that as the people of God, we do relate well to each other, and that that's an ongoing thing, but at the end of the day, our hope is in that, um, in his return. Is that? Tom, do you want to add anything? Um, now, it is also worth, I don't know if it's worth saying, oh, I don't know, do you want to say this? There's also quite a lot of forbearing with people. So I think, don't misunderstand this text. This isn't a text to go around every time someone sins against you, you go, brother, you sin against me, you need to repent. There is a, a forbearance. There is a, um, you know, we're not picking up on everything, but at the same time, if there are, if we're not relating well to each other and there are patterns of sin, that they need to be, need to be addressed. So yeah, cool. Time for more. If you would like. Go on, Mackie. Yes, 
No, thanks. So, yeah, the parable of the ten lepers and, yeah, how that... Well, it's an interesting one because um, I think we've had this before a bit that basically a contrast has been drawn between how Israel is expected to be responding to Jesus and then actually how they're not, but then, you know, uh, non-Jews, in this case a Samaritan or is called here's a foreigner, is actually responding uh, positively. So, because his point is, actually, he expects people who've received healing from him to give him um, thanks and praise. That's the right response. Yet he doesn't find that in any of them except the one who is a Samaritan. So on the one hand, I guess that's that further... Um, um, uh, shows that Israel is not responding to their Messiah as they ought to. And that obviously that is, interestingly, on their way to Jerusalem that you pointed out, what's going to happen to him there? Well, there he's going to feel the full brunt of their opposition towards him to the point that they will um, crucify him. So in that sense, it anticipates that rejection of Israel of their Messiah but also anticipates you know, what Luke will explore in his second book, the book of Acts, that this gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ will actually be received by the Samaritans and then ultimately by the nations of the world. So there is that. Um, you've got a little kind of taste of where this is, uh, where this is going, but we're, um, uh, we're not there yet. But it is a reminder that there is this expectation that those who receive God's mercy are to respond in gratitude for that. Okay, let's leave it there. And we're going to sing um, our next song, uh, Restore, O Lord. <laughs>